Well, now we have our main Bible reading, which is Romans 13. And it says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. <coughs> Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, in a minute, we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, just a few things to mention. As you well know, all well know, um, as soon as the sermon ends, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been reflecting upon. You have your sermon outlines that you can use or uh, refuse, depending on what you want to do with that. And first, and more importantly, let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you as we reflect on these things uh, that we are getting to know you and what you're like. We thank you for the great gospel that we've seen unfold in the book of Romans and how now we're seeing uh, further implications of that for us and how we're to engage both uh, with one another and a larger scale uh, with the authorities that we have. We pray, Lord, that we would be your servants, that we would um, be keen to carry out good so that we might reflect the Father of our 
uh, Father in, the character of our Father in heaven. Amen. Well, a theme that runs through the book of Daniel is found in Daniel 4, verse 17, which is what we read out earlier on uh, a moment ago. And it says this, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The point is very simple. God is sovereign over the whole world to the extent that when a king is enthroned over whichever country it may be, it's God who put him there. But we can go further. This includes every means by which a ruling body may come to power. So is it hereditary? Well, it's God who put him there. Is it via a ballot box? It's God who put him there. Has it come about through force? Nevertheless, it's God who has put him there. It doesn't matter if it's a king or a government, the ruling body has been given its position by God. That's at least one part of the message of the book of Daniel. But of course we're not in Daniel today, we're in the book of Romans. Romans 13, to be precise. Now, this passage has to be among those passages that are most well known. In, it's very common for people to refer to this passage during a Bible study. And it doesn't matter which Bible passage is being studied. I've heard this passage referred to multiple times in multiple studies. And the comment might go something like this. God has told us to obey our rulers and governments as long as the ruler or government is in line with God's will. Obviously, our first allegiance is always to God. So, wherever the government might expect us to go against obeying God, then, well, that's when we obey God and we disobey our government. And I think that's a standard approach to this passage. Well, you can imagine my surprise earlier this week when I actually read Romans 13, 1-7, because it doesn't really say that. There doesn't seem to be a caveat present in it. So let's just make a few observations. Firstly, the passage picks up the same theme as we see in Daniel 4, verse 17. All authorities, they exist because God has given them their position. They have been appointed by God without exception. And so, as people with transformed minds, as we see back in 12 verse 3, we need to appreciate the extent of God's sovereignty. We need to be thinking in terms of no matter which government, whatever country it may be, God causes their rise... And we can also say that when another government comes to replace it, it's God that will cause its downfall. Verse 2 then speaks about our obligation to our government. If you resist the government that God has appointed, you stand against God and are opposing him. 
Not just the government he appointed, but God. And if you resist, you will incur judgment. Let's just have a look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. What judgment do you think Paul is talking about here? In a minute, in the passage, he is going to go on and talk about the authorities' judgment. But at this point in the passage, he hasn't got there yet. So really, the only judgment that's been mentioned has been God's judgment. At this point in the passage, it probably makes more sense to be thinking in terms of God's eschatological judgment as opposed to the judgment that's not yet come. So it's the idea that if you oppose those that God has appointed, you oppose God. The government are God's ruling representatives, and that is regardless of if they acknowledge him or not. This is God's creation, and he's the one who establishes authorities. Now, Paul then goes on to explain that Christians have nothing to fear from the government, given that we're to behave with good conduct because we're under Christ. Well, that's what the government wants, good conduct. So the government won't bother us if our conduct is good. It's when people do bad that the government will act And that's when the government's to be feared. So, the Christian has nothing to worry about. It's only people who do wrong who has anything to fear from the government. Those who do wrong will be punished by God's servant. They are the government, God's servant, they're God's avengers. They carry out God's wrath against the wrongdoer. So have a look at verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This takes us back to chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, it's not that this verse is exhausted by what we're reading in verse 13, but in part, God's servant, the authorities, they have been ordained to play a part. It's their role to bring God's vengeance on those who deserve it, not the role of the individual Christian. Now, while we're told not to behave badly in order to avoid punishment... This isn't the primary reason. The primary reason that we're to behave is given in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. It's for the sake of conscience. We're to understand that God is sovereign over all the authorities. He's appointed them as his servants. And if we know this, then we will know we're to obey because they're one of God's means by which he reveals his wrath 
at this point of redemptive history. Now, all this is well and good, but we can appreciate that Christians have a tendency to avoid this plain reading of the text. And so we return back to this idea that we can obey the government, but as soon as there are odds with God, then our obligation is to obey God and disobey the government. After all, governments are not always known for being good. So in order to explore this conundrum, let's start again. Let's go back to verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Notice what the command is. The command is not that we obey the governing authorities. Rather, Paul's language is that of submission. Submission is the recognition that God gives the government its authority. And in most cases, submission will look like obedience. If there is a time and a place when disobedience is necessary, since we obey a higher authority, then there may still be the need to submit to the governance punishment as a result of our disobedience. It's about submission, it's not about obedience. We submit to the government, and if they would have us do something that we aren't happy to do because of God's rule, then when we disobey, we submit to their punishment. What's quite revealing is we can actually see this in Paul's own experience. If you think back to his experience with the governments in Acts, Paul submits to the governments. When they weren't happy with him preaching the gospel, they would arrest him. And though he appealed, asking the reason for his arrest, ultimately he submitted to their authority. We also see it played out in the book of Daniel, both him and his contemporaries. They submitted to the authorities of their time, knowing ultimately God was sovereign and it was he who installs every government. So when they refused to worship other idols or pray to the idols, they submitted to whatever punishment befell them, knowing that God was in control. Now Paul connects what he said here with what will come next by exploring debts. So you get this idea, whatever is owed, pay. In fact, don't owe anyone anything. However, 
There is one debt that can never be fully paid, and that's the debt of love we have to one another. You know, you're never going to get to the end of the day and think to yourself, I have loved enough. If anyone has been worried, as we've been reading about Paul's insistence of faith not works, that it might lead to a freedom to do whatever we like, then this should put us at ease. The one who loves has fulfilled the law. Of course, this isn't something we can achieve now, but the command still stands, we are to love. And if we were to love completely, the law would be fulfilled. Many years ago, I heard Philip Jensen make the simplest of statements that I found ever so profound. And he simply said this, it's very hard to love your neighbour as yourself while sleeping with his wife. Society's view of love is that it's an emotion. And it's an emotion that's wrong to resist. If two people love one another, they should be together and nothing should stand in the way of love. Regardless if the love is between another man's wife and another woman's husband. But authentic love means you consider everyone, not just yourself. This is part of the reason why the phrase you shall love your neighbour as yourself is so profound. Who is your neighbour? It's literally everyone who's in close proximity to you in your daily life. We've said before that that they live in such close proximity to us actually makes them very hard people to love. By what standard should we love them? Well, despite what we're told, no one has any difficulty loving themselves. We have a deep concern for ourselves. And what is being asked of us is to take this deep concern for ourselves and have that same deep concern for others. And so... You wouldn't want anyone to sleep with your wife. Why then would it be acceptable to sleep with someone else's wife? Notice what we see in verse 10. We come back to something we considered last week. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It all has to do with what we do, or maybe what we refuse to do. This is how we demonstrate an authentic love for one another. It's how we act towards one another. Well, as we conclude, Paul once again takes us to how an eternal perspective, God's perspective, is what we're to adopt. And as we think in this way, it's to change our behaviour. He explains how salvation's closer, 
And so now is the time to put off and put on. And once again, we're seeing this negative and positive. The negative is stop behaving like this. But that isn't enough. Once we've stopped doing what's wrong, that then needs to be filled in and replaced with the positive behaviour. That is where we need to put on the new ways. It isn't enough to stop being nasty to your neighbour. You then need to go on and care for your neighbour. And Paul finishes by contrasting the wicked behaviour that naturally occurs in the dark with the behaviour that occurs in the light. To put off the darkness, put on the light. We're to have victory over the desires of our flesh by putting on Jesus, the one who brings us victory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can be confident knowing that you're sovereign. Despite the fact that the world is in turmoil, it has always been in turmoil. And yet we know that your redemptive plan is working its way out and that you uh, give rulers their authority and you take them away. And we can look forward to and anticipate the day when your kingdom will be completely consummated. But as we anticipate and wait that time, we pray, pray Lord, that we would, towards one another and our neighbours, reflect the love that you show to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would show the deep concern that we have for ourselves to others so that we might be moving in the direction of fulfilling the law um, through those mighty words that you said, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Amen. Okay, so we've arrived at question time. Questions, comments, thoughts on what we've been thinking about. Sure, yeah, so... I think, let me just repeat for the recording, so can we explore what it means to submit and not obey? So I guess it's, it's kind of that sort of sense of ultimately they've got the authority. So if we end up disobeying, then ultimately what is going to be the next move? And I think... And many moons ago, I heard Philip Jensen talk about this, and he, he sort of talked in terms of, you know, people can kind of flee the country or they can kind of, um, you know, leave whichever country they're in so that they can escape the judgment of their government. He says, but you're under their authority. You know, you're part of that government because that's, you know, presumably if you're in your home, home place, it's your national thing. So submit to them, and if they're going to punish you for it, then you'll be punished for them, which seems quite severe. But So I think the, the difference there then is, is, so ultimately we do need to obey, because that's what it means to submit. But in the situation or scenario where they're asking us to do something that we're not happy to do, for example, well, we'll mention it in the reflection, Peter and John are asked to stop speaking of Jesus and they continue to speak about Jesus. And so the question now then is, how do they submit as they disobey? 
well, when they get holed up um, in front of the government, they submit to whatever punishment they're given. So, and, I mean, it, it is a bit of a, a language thing, isn't it? I think people read it as obey, and so they think, we are supposed to obey, but we obey as far as we can, but then we disobey. But it's just not quite what it says. It says we're to submit to them, which means we obey as far as we can. When we disobey, we still submit to the authorities. It's, it's hard to, I mean, it's, I think what's interesting is hard to see it playing out now because there are so many appeals that can be made. Like in, in our country, if something happened, you could appeal against it. And if we, you know, and further appeals could be made and that. And I mean, ultimately, that's partly because we're, we've got a Christian history uh, where there is a, a a big, a quite a serious view of justice. But there are elsewhere, there are countries where actually if you go against the authority, that's game over. Um, and I guess we're a bit more used to our culture where you can just appeal and appeal and appeal. But actually the world's a lot more severe than that. Ultimately, obviously, thinking very broadly, and this is, I think, where the example of Daniel is helpful. You know, they, were, there was, they had no one to appeal to. They were living in exile under the Babylonians and the others. So when they went into the fiery furnace, they went into the fiery furnace knowing that God could save them because that's who God is. But it doesn't matter if he doesn't. They won't obey another, they won't bow down to another idol. So, in the grand scope of things, we've got the final vindication in sight. So, if we were to find ourselves stood before, you know, the death penalty, then we do so with, with the um, final vindication in sight. But again, you know, we're in the UK at the minute. It's not what you find. Uh, yes, Rachel. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Well, no, it's very, I mean, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? And I think, because this is the thing, isn't it? So I guess if you're in Afghanistan, you're a church. Obviously, there's lots of people who are trying to escape Afghanistan. Um, and that's, um, you know, and again, and, and again, we're living in a world where that's an option. For Daniel and his friends, that wasn't an option. So they didn't do that because it just wasn't even on the cards. Um, I guess it's one of those things, isn't it? Maybe... There's, there's a conscience thing in that some people will feel like they want to escape and leave the country. There may be people who are determined to stay and continue with the church in Afghanistan. I mean, that's kind of up to them, you know, from a conscious point of view. Um, 
I guess there's that sense of can you put together, you know, in that eternal perspective, do you think in terms of the church is going to be punished for what they do at the minute, but we're going to persevere for the time, knowing that us, you know, these the chances are these first generation in this new situation are going to be dead, but we'll stay here for the second generation that maybe rise up. It's happened before, you know, back in the early church, they used to say the blood of the martyrs is what caused the church to grow. Interestingly, church in England isn't growing. It's just too comfortable. But there's something peculiar about the church can grow in times of... So there's lots of factors to consider. Um, I guess not just this. Um, and yeah, very much so. And I think um, I think there's a sense in the 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 details of life are very messy. So you know, you don't go, God's done that, 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 God's done that. You know, God's in control of everything else. He's causing everything to come about. You know, ultimately, we know that God is in control and he knows that, you know, it's not surprised him. You know, like everyone else, God's not thinking, oh, I didn't expect them to, Taliban to take over. I thought it'd take him at least 30 days. You know, he's not in that situation. He, he knew it was going to happen. And, you know, in many respects, he's causing what's happening. In the same way he brought up the ba- Babylonians, he's brought up the Taliban, you know. But, but there's a sense in that... I mean, this... Obviously, what's happened this last week is very small compared to what's happening in the grand scheme of things. You know, this all begins back in... Um, 1996, when the Taliban first take over, and you know, obviously, then there's the war starts, or the yeah, the war starts off the back of 9/11. So, what's just happened just recently is is there's a lot bigger stuff going on. Um, it's all parts of small things, um, but again. It's not surprising because we're told there's going to be rumours of wars, wars and rumours of wars. You know, the funny thing about our history at the minute is actually how peaceful it is, thinking in terms of, um, you know, one of the things that was interesting before the First World War was they thought they um, sussed it. Because you go back and look at history, basically, history's just a load of wars. You get to... Um, just before the First World War, they feel like they've had this enlightenment, and then they're sort of saying, there will never be another war, at which point the biggest war comes about, which comes to an end, only to be replaced by you know, the Second World War, which is followed by the Cold War, which is followed by, you know, history is just the history of war. So, and I think, I mean, like, it's interesting when... When um, the bomb happened um, in London after the 9-11, the kids at school, when I was teaching, were like freaked out. And I was like, why are you freaked out? This happens all the time. But I'd forgotten. Like I was growing up when the IRA were active. 
but it had been long enough that they'd gone quiet or they'd been the peace process, which meant that they'd forgotten about it. It's just every day. Um, I've just, I'm just trying to remember what the question was. <laughs> Um, so I, I think yeah, my, I think my point is is that these things will be happening, and um, ultimately, in one respect, I'm surprised the world's not worse than it is. You know, it's in God's grace that we have the peace that we have. Um, but you know, China's chomping at the bit to cause trouble with Taiwan. You know, there's something else going to be round the corner. But that's what the world's going to be like when it's not under the rule of God. Um, that's what Daniel's about, and that's what we're experiencing now, and have always experienced. We're waiting for that full consummation, that final kingdom that will wipe it all out and start again, we'll start with the kingdom. Okay, let's stop there if you're happy. We're going to uh, have a reflection in a moment, but before we do, we're going to stand to sing, My Hope is Built.